Hello everyone, I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we start this episode, I want to remind you about our upcoming golf outing and fundraiser to be held on June 24th at the Muttontown Club on Long Island. If you are in the New York area, the day promises to be a memorable one with many activities in addition to an exciting round of golf, including brunch, cocktail reception, and auction. Learn more and register today at nycfiremuseum.org slash golf outing. And now, let's start the show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the deep roots of emergency medical services in New York City extend back to 1869. FDNY introduces the city to the first firefighter EMTs in 1975, and the 1954 passing of Dr. Harry Archer. In 1996, the Fire Department of the City of New York and New York City EMS were merged into one life-saving entity. The first FDNY Chief of EMS was our current Fire Commissioner, Daniel Nigro. Since then, the department's certified emergency responders, EMTs, and paramedics have made a difference in the lives of New Yorkers every single day. And we should note that during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, more than ever, the public has gained an even deeper awareness of how important these heroes are to the five boroughs. EMS has deep roots in New York, dating back to 1869. With us today to discuss that landmark year and some important milestones in the evolution of emergency medical services in New York City, we have a special guest. I'd like to welcome fellow historian and a good friend, retired Chief J.P. Martin. Welcome, Chief. Thank you, Gary. First, give our listeners some background about yourself, your service, and how you became so interested in EMS history. My interest started really on day one, the first time I walked into a garage in the Bronx, ambulance garage, and there was a picture on the wall of a 1942 Cadillac ambulance. And everybody had told me up until then that EMS had started in 1970, and I wondered where a 1942 Cadillac was. (laughs) So that sort of got my curiosity up on the first day. Why do EMS historians like you mark 1869 as the beginning of ambulance services in New York City? Prior to that time, there was no ambulance service for anyone really in the country. So 1869 was the first year that the first two municipal ambulances came out of Bellevue Hospital and started to take patients to the hospital. Prior to that, they would come in riding on carts, being dragged in. So this was the first attempt to bring patients into the hospital without hurting them more than they would have. How did that first come about? Who brought those vehicles into the city? The ambulances were designed by a doctor by the name of Edward B. Dalton from his experiences during the Civil War removing battlefield casualties back to field hospitals. And did each hospital operate their own ambulances independent of each other? Exactly. First it was Bellevue, and then some more voluntary hospitals came online, like New York Hospital. They felt this was the best way to bring patients in. And remember, at the time, most people of means would have their doctors visit them at home if they were ill or injured. It was really just the poor and the destitute who made use of the public ambulance. So if somebody needed an ambulance, how did they request one, and how were the ambulances dispatched? Well, if anyone needed any help of any sort, police, fire, ambulance, they would look for a beat cop walking on the street 
and there was a system of telegraph boxes all over the city. There were actually two systems. There was one for the police department and one for the fire department. And each one was connected to a central office or a police precinct. And whoever was at the other end would call the closest hospital, and that hospital would send an ambulance out to the scene. So was Bellevue the really the only municipal hospital back, well, back in 1869, it was only Manhattan was New York City, but uh, was it the only city hospital uh, at that time? At what point did other city hospitals get involved and form the municipal service as we sort of know it? We have photographs of horse-drawn ambulances at Harlem Hospital, at uh, Kings County Hospital, but New York City wasn't even unified until 1898. So you have the Bronx and Manhattan as one entity, and then other hospitals were running their own services, which were eventually brought in underneath the Department of Hospitals as pretty much one entity. So you mentioned the Department of Hospitals. How did it evolve from there under different entities to become eventually New York City EMS, and as we'll get into, into part of the FDNY? There was very little development, all from 1869 until about 1940. All you had was a physician on the ambulance and a driver, and the physicians rotated. They just came out of medical school. They had very little medical experience. They were thrown out on the ambulance for a few months, and that was the system. In World War II, the docs came off, and they would take anybody in the hospital with a white uniform, an orderly, a nurse's aide, and they went out on the ambulance, so the care dropped significantly. And then after World War II, some of the people with medic certifications came back to the city and the system really started to develop technologically in 1970 when the Department of Hospitals became the Health and Hospitals Corporation and technology allowed us to expand and improve the service. You told us a little bit about how the public would summon an ambulance, but there must have been a lot of communication needed. How did that evolve and how did we get to the point of having computers and radios inside the ambulances? Well, for the first 80 years or so, you had to go back to the hospital with a patient and then wait there for your next call to be dispatched. So after about 1952, two-way radios came on the scene, and each ambulance could then be dispatched without having to return back to the hospital. So that allowed an ambulance to stay more distant from the hospital and in an area where there might be a higher frequency of calls. Once EMS came to be in 1970, then there was a lot of pre-planning and a lot of preparing of ambulances for particular areas where there's a higher frequency of calls and we would have ambulances in roving districts. So even beyond the early years we've been talking about, who are some of the key or notable figures in forming EMS in New York City? Well, as I mentioned before, Dr. Edward B. Dalton brought in his military experience to develop the ambulance system for the city. In 1903, the very first woman came and challenged the system to become an intern, and she rode the ambulance. Of course, you're referring to uh, Dr. Emily Dunning Berenger. So we've had women on the ambulance for almost 120 years. We had very little development through the 20th century until 1970 when technology allowed us to bring in the paramedics and computers for improving dispatch 
and quality assurance. So we had one of our executive directors was named Jim Kerr. He brought in computers to improve the service. Larry Motley was one of our first medical directors, and he brought in quality assurance and quality improvement. And Sheldon Jacobson, who was the very first medical director of the very first paramedic program. And that paramedic program just lifted the entire EMS system up by its bootstraps. You know, you mentioned the the training and the paramedics. Now, I know that part of your service with the FDNY, you served as the chief of EMS training. So tell us a little bit about the training of the field personnel. When I went through paramedic school, it was five months. The paramedic training is now nine months long, including a good portion of clinical experience. So when the paramedics leave our class, they are fully trained and equipped to essentially bring an emergency room to the patient. Prior to 1974, patients were rapidly transported from the scene, and this just changed the entire means of doing pre-hospital medicine in the field. I know that not everyone agreed with merging New York City EMS into FDNY in 1996. What made that controversial back then? I think a lot of it had to do with a lack of understanding of each other's roles and responsibilities at emergency scenes. We didn't really understand what the firefighters did. We thought they just came and poured water on a fire, and they just thought we transported patients to the hospital as quickly as we could. So it took 20 years before there was a really good understanding of what each other did, and with that came the respect for doing each other's job. Well, thankfully, that's past us now. It is, very much so. I always say that those of us who are historians kind of look to the past, but we also have to make sure that we capture what's going on now and towards the future. Now, I know that you and Captain Quigley were the motivating factors behind setting up an EMS museum. EMS has its own phenomenal history of its own before coming into the FDNY. We have a small exhibit for it in the FDNY Museum. But tell us about the EMS Museum that you set up. Well, it's not very big, nothing as large as the Fire Museum. It's about uh, 400 square foot. and What we tried to do is tell the story of how the ambulance service developed in the city. And it's been used as a model, as has the entire FDNY. It's been used as a model for so many smaller departments throughout the country. So we like to answer the question, well, how did it get to be the way it is? And we show the development from the horse-drawn era through the 40s and 50s and into the modern era beginning in 1970 and how paramedics changed the service entirely. We have a small section on the paramedics and EMTs, what their actions were at 9-11, and we have as many little artifacts as we can to sort of show what people wore, how they operated, and what sort of vehicles they rode in at the time. Some of the artifacts came from my personal collection, from other people's personal collections, people who are moving find stuff in their basements and they find them in their attics, people who pass away, their, their relatives say, hey, we have this item, do you think you can use it for the museum? The fire museum was very generous and they have loaned us the first piece of pre-hospital equipment ever designed, something called a pull motor, to assist patients who had stopped breathing. And we'll be putting that on display very soon. And if it's something we don't have, we'll go out and and buy that just so we have an example of what used to weigh 200 pounds that now weighs six ounces. And you can see how people in the past had to operate with antiquated equipment and antiquated uniforms. You can see how the entire system developed from the horse-drawn area 
and kerosene lanterns to ambulances with LED lighting and everything in between. So if somebody uh, you know hears us talking about this and they get all excited about uh, emergency medical services as both you and I did when we were much younger, what would you recommend their path be in order to look for a career in emergency medical services? I think the best way to do it, because pre-hospital emergency medicine is not for everyone, but if there's a volunteer ambulance corps in your area, try it out. Many of them sponsor EMT classes where you can learn how to handle yourself in case of an emergency. But if you do it as a volunteer, you find out right away if you like it or not. Take a CPR class to start out with. And the more training you have, the more comfortable you become with emergency situations. FDNY, EMS is always hiring. It's an exciting career. You gain a great deal of self-confidence from it that you can handle any kind of emergency. The best way would be to go to joinfdny.com, and you'll have all the information there on how to start your career with EMS. Well, thank you, Chief. It was a pleasure having you with us today. Thanks. Thank you very much for inviting me, Gary. Hello, everyone. I'm Ted Grant, president of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. There remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year, many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped and we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety, and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new crisis recovery fund at nycfiremuseum.org donate. It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org donate. Thank you for your generosity, continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY. Aside from the inevitable rendering of first aid at incidents, where the FDNY were the first responders to arrive, the department did not take an active role in providing emergency medical services in New York City until 1975 when the first class of FDNY firefighters to become emergency medical technicians, or EMTs, began. It came to the attention of some members of the department that many other fire services in the country were incorporating medical training for firefighters. 
Perhaps the strongest influence of this was a popular new television series entitled Emergency. It depicted two central characters in the Los Angeles County Fire Department paramedic program. The drama portrayed both fire and medical emergencies from fictional LA Station 51. The show premiered in 1972 and introduced the concept to the general public of paramedics performing advanced emergency medical procedures outside of a hospital. Many senior EMTs and paramedics will tell you that this show is what motivated them to choose the career that they did. As described back then by FDNY Captain Mike Steflovich, training firefighters in New York City to be EMTs would make it possible for pre-hospital care to be rendered in dangerous situations, such as aircraft crashes, building collapses, industrial accidents, and similar calamities. It was argued that certainly, as the largest fire department in the United States, the FDNY should be leading the way in this trend. So on September 8, 1975, under the direction of Captain Stuffelvich, the first FDNY-sponsored EMT program began. 320 members were selected for training from the list of 1,200 applicants. Each class had a limited enrollment of only 40 to ensure that a high level of competence was achieved. At that time, the minimum requirements imposed by New York State Department of Health for certification was 40 hours of classroom instruction in lecture and practical format plus 10 hours of clinical observation in a hospital emergency department. The FDNY program exceeded this minimum requirement with 96 hours of classroom time plus the clinical experience. Today, approximately 165 hours of classroom training is required. For those who don't know, this was all occurring at a time when New York City was in dire financial straits. Firehouses were being closed and members were being laid off. In order to fund this program and ensure that it was ongoing, non-municipal private funding sources were pursued. They also turned to the Health and Hospitals Corporation for assistance and cooperation, given the belief that the FDNY would now take a more active role in pre-hospital emergency care. In order to recognize the members who had successfully completed EMT training and had passed the New York State certification exam, they were permitted to affix an official New York State EMT tombstone patch with the letters FDNY in a rocker panel above. By the way, the official FDNY departmental patch had just recently been adopted. In addition, they would place a two inch by two inch reflective Star of Life decal on their helmet. As we just heard in the previous segment, the FDNY took a major leap forward in providing emergency medical care in New York City upon the merger of the New York City Emergency Medical Service in 1996, 25 years ago. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. We are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org slash donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. Going back to the early and mid-20th century in FDNY history, the name Dr. Harry M. Archer was well known. Like so many things, that memory has faded from most. But Dr. Archer left a huge impact on the FDNY, and especially on emergency medical care. Harry Mortimer Archer was born in 1868 to a prominent New York family. He attended Columbia University and received an MD degree 
from Bellevue Medical College in 1894. Not unlike many youngsters in the city, he loved the FDNY since his childhood. Once he became a physician, Dr. Archer dedicated himself to New York's bravest. Rather than becoming a private physician to New York's high society, he accepted a salary position with Aetna Life-affiliated companies, with the proviso that he could and would leave his office to attend greater alarm fires. On March 7, 1907, Dr. Archer was appointed to the department with the honorary rank of battalion chief and was designated a medical officer. Though never receiving compensation for his medical services to the FDNY, there is no doubt that this was his full-time commitment. In those days, the FDNY did not provide emergency medical services to the city. In fact, the only ambulance they operated was for fire horses. But Dr. Archer would respond with his medical bag in hand to care for any members of the uniform force that were injured or became ill at the scene of fires. Around 1914, he decided that the department should have an ambulance for any of these members that required further care at a hospital. So, being an early automobile owner himself, he designed an ambulance to be made on a locomobile chassis. It was kept in the quarters of Engine Company 56 on West 83rd Street. At the time, Dr. Archer and his wife lived on West 82nd Street, making it very easy for him to be picked up to respond to second or greater alarm fires on board the ambulance. Everyone called the ambulance Dr. Archer's bus. Once at the scene, he was not satisfied with merely tending to the wounds, major or minor, of the firefighters. On multiple occasions, Dr. Archer entered burning or collapsed buildings to treat firefighters and civilians alike. At the Equitable Building Fire in 1912, he made his way into the basement vaults of the building to administer aid to trapped men. For this action, he received his first Valor Medal. He was cited a total of four times during his career, including the department's highest award, then the James Gordon Bennett Medal, now the Chief of Department Peter J. Gancy Jr. Medal, for his participation in the rescue of two workmen trapped in a building collapse at 39 to 41 Eldridge Street in Manhattan. Dr. Archer himself became trapped briefly when a second collapse shook the building as he was making his exit. 24 years later, at the age of 78, Dr. Archer was still at it, this time crawling through the rubble and debris to spend over 10 hours on a freezing New Year's Eve to try to keep two firefighters alive. They were trapped in the collapse of a loft building at 749 Broadway. Dr. Archer administered plasma to them, perhaps the first time this was done outside of a hospital in other than a combat setting, as well as feeding them broth through tubes. Dr. Archer's activities earned him the respect of his professional colleagues, as well as the firefighters he treated. He became nationally known for his expertise in treating toxic gas poisoning, having developed groundbreaking treatment modalities. Sometimes his methods were low-tech. He was known to stock woolen Navy watch caps in his ambulance that he would make injured men wear on cold, wet nights. In 1939, Mayor LaGuardia asked Dr. Archer to serve as second deputy fire commissioner, which he did through 1940. Dr. Archer's service to the department ended upon his passing in 1954, but his legacy lives on. In 1947, a medal was endowed in his name. It is awarded every third year to one of the three previous Bennett Medal recipients, now the Gansey Medal. In 1956, Commissioner Cavanaugh unveiled a plaque in headquarters honoring Dr. Archer's 60 years of devotion and service to the members of the department. And in 1958, a fireboat was commissioned in his name. It was retired in 1994. A true pioneer in pre-hospital emergency care, let's remember Dr. Archer and his groundbreaking work with the FDNY.
And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. During the war years, a period of time beginning in the mid-1960s and lasting well into the 1970s, there was an unprecedented number of fires throughout the city during a time of civil unrest and fiscal constraints. Arson was rampant. To help handle the massive number of alarms that mostly happened between the hours of 4 p.m. and midnight, six additional companies were fielded. So what were these units called? The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's New York City Fire Museum newsletter. Throwback FDNY Podcast is brought to you with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. Thanks again to retired Chief J.P. Martin. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building during a fire, close all doors as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We could all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.